Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Today we are starting a new sermon series called One Body, Many Parts, where we are going to figure out what the church of God is supposed to look like, the church of Jesus, in, in practical ways. Um, today we're going to handle a little bit of the theological foundations, but we're going to get super, super practical over the next seven weeks over what family looks like, what connectivity looks like, what community, real community looks like. And um, this was on my heart months ago as something just to make our church family stronger. Obviously, I didn't know we were going to be in a quarantine situation, but let me say this, kind of alluded to it earlier, the lack of of connectivity, whatever loneliness was already in place six weeks ago, a magnifying glass is being put over it right now. And we can see it that much more clearly, even if it's only in our own heart. And our, our friends or our family may or may not be able to see it without some communication, without uh, us calling each other, without some type of oftentimes digital communication. If there was loneliness, if there was isolation, if there was depression in place six weeks ago, it has just gotten worse. Or, or even if it hasn't gotten worse, we can see it and we can feel it. And so, uh, as it turns out, I think this is a very more than appropriate time to be talking about human connectivity to each other that results from human beings being connected to their Savior. So, this is what we're going to be doing for the next seven weeks. You'll see today kind of where we're headed with this. Today we're talking, the title of the sermon is From Crowd to Community. We're going to do a quick walk through different parts of Scripture, especially the back quarter of Matthew and then a little bit into Acts, Romans and Acts. I'm going to take you on a very quick journey to show you how Holy Week, really all of Jesus, our incarnation, but Holy Week in particular, um, Jesus' betrayal, his death, his resurrection, uh, and, and then giving of the Holy, his, uh, the Holy Spirit after ascending into heaven. Uh, these things took lots of different crowds of people that were around and listening to him, but then actually made them into a family. Something very powerful happened that shifted. And that shift 2,000 years ago is one of the most important shifts today uh, for a church to know what they are. And then if you're exploring Christianity, you also need to know. I want to tell you beforehand this is what a healthy Christian church looks like. This is what the church of Jesus Christ across 2,000 plus years looks like. This is what God has told us to be and how he has made us what we are. So that's kind of where we're headed today. Some of these I'm going to just talk through briefly because we could not possibly turn to every one of them in the time that we have today, but I'd love it. Um, you'll see the scriptures uh, here on the screen next to each point. If you'd go do a Bible study this week and look at these things for yourself. So let's talk about... Crowd transitioning to community. First, in Matthew 21, a crowd cried, Hosanna. Okay? A crowd did that. Uh, Hosanna is a term of an expression of praise that means literally save us now. And so here's my point. Um, five days before Jesus is crucified, there's a whole crowd of people outside of Jerusalem celebrating Jesus and throwing a parade for him of, wow, awesome, he thinks, they think that he's the Messiah who's going to deliver them from Rome, and they have, as we often do, 
They have false expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to accomplish. And, and well, we're going to see in a minute how it was proved that those expectations were false, of what his kingdom was going to look like. It wasn't going to come with a sword. It was going to come with a cross. Secondly, we see this through a few chapters of Matthew. A crowd heard Jesus teach. You see, they're not a community yet. We were not a community yet. There were a handful of apostles that had spent a lot of time with Jesus. But these crowds in Jerusalem, they're, see, they're celebrating his entrance into the city. They hear him teach. All these, read these chapters of things that everybody heard him say. It's an important point to go, you know, we can hear what Jesus has to say. That doesn't make us a part of the family of God. We're not necessarily entering into community. It just means we're hearing what he's got to say. Okay, I'll listen a little bit. I'll hear you out a little bit, right? How many of you have read at any point in your life a religious book of some type, but you did not change religions at the end of reading that book? Okay, I have. I know not everybody has, but how many of you have read a book of a certain philosophy or read something in school and you did not turn around and adopt that philosophy? You just studied it from the outside, right? We do this all the time. And this happened in Jesus' ministry as much as anybody else. I hear him teach. That doesn't make me part of a community either. A third, a crowd shouted, crucify him. This happened on Friday morning. As soon as it becomes really clear, and it did, when it became really clear that this is not the Messiah that we wanted, and we know because the pastors are the ones that have you know, gone after Jesus with clubs and spears and, and arrested him in the night, and they had a kangaroo court trial uh, in the middle of the night and said he's a blasphemer and um, how on earth these guys are able to whip up a crowd into a religious frenzy of of this guy's an imposter, this guy's a fake um, and we'd rather have Barabbas instead of him we'd rather have a murderer released to the people instead of him. This was not a community that were family all connected by the same head this is just a crowd But I need you to know, you and I are a part of every crowd that I've talked about so far. Blood is on our hands, not just on somebody else's, okay? Fourth, a community was created on Easter morning, okay? Now, if you have been uh, in and around the Bible for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've studied, you're going to think when I make that fourth point, you think I'm skipping the cross, but I'm not. And we're going to get into that in Romans 8 in a little bit. And here's the deal, and if you're part of ARCF, you've heard me say this many times. Jesus' cross on Friday morning would have been proven to be all a lie and a waste of time if Jesus did not raise himself from death on Sunday. Because he said he was God. He said he was going to forgive humanity. He's going to lay down his life and he's going to take it back up again. If he gets crucified and does not raise himself from death on Easter morning, he's just another imposter, perhaps who had good motives, maybe who didn't. The cross's power is inextricably linked to the resurrection. And of course, the resurrection cannot happen unless he is first killed. You cannot really separate the two from each other. Uh, And I'm also basing this partly on a text I taught a few weeks ago. Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. Uh, It was the resurrection that showed that he was a part of a greater whole, that the entire family of faith who put their trust in him are going to be resurrected one day. I'm going to come back to this point, and this point is actually going to be the sermon today. But let me keep walking through what's happened. A community was commissioned. Read this earlier. Jesus said to this uh, small group of believers, Go make disciples. Everywhere you go in all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey 
everything I've commanded. And, I, and he gives that commission out of his own authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Should we really be shocked when he says he is the son of man, when he says he is the son of God, when he says he's going to lay down his life, he says he's going to take his life back up again, when he actually does it, when he raises himself from death, should we be shocked at that point that it was all true and the father had actually handed him all authority? There should be no surprise here. He apparently has authority over life and death. So how much less to tell Christians, get off your duff and go tell people of the saving love of God. How, how small an effort compared to his gargantuan work of defeating death and of defeating sin. A community was given the Holy Spirit. You can read about this in Acts chapter 2. Those that believed Jesus was Messiah were gathered in a place, they're having a prayer meeting, and Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to empower them, to, book of Philippians says, give them the desire and the power to do what pleases God. And Jesus had said to his disciples, you'll do greater things than this. And nobody knew how that was going to work. But then when he sends his Holy Spirit and puts that Holy Spirit inside every believer, all of a sudden there is a divine strength to do what pleases the Father. And without the Holy Spirit, we would not have that ability. It's just not possible. And then last in this particular timeline, a community was told how to function as God's own family on earth. A community was told how to function as God's own family on earth. Truthfully, this all this goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. It really, really goes back to Abram. But I'm specifically referencing the New Testament texts right now where God told Christians, here's how to love and serve one another. Here's how to behave. Here's how to love and serve those who do not think like you and do not believe what you believe. Here's how to honor God. All of this instruction in the New Testament is why I said come next week. This point is going to be the next six sermons. All right? That's how big a deal it is. This is how much time and energy God has devoted and put into the New Testament of teaching God's family, how to behave in a way that is holy and peculiar and is a blessing to those around it. And so we're going to talk about how to love and serve each other well, how to love and serve our community well, if we call ourselves Jesus followers. That's the timeline. But as it relates to today and how resurrection creates a community, go with me to Romans 8. I'm going to share a few thoughts out of Romans 8 that show us that the resurrection really did take a crowd and create a community. This here is going to be the sermon. Um, I, I told everybody before the prayer huddle today that I think today's going to be shorter, and that's usually what we call pastoral deceit, where the pastor has lied to himself, and then he turns around and lies to other people. So we'll see. But I, I'm intending to just share a three or four thoughts at, through this beautiful text of Romans. It is a one-point sermon. I want everybody listening who's tuned in today, everyone who's in the room today, I want my own heart to see that the resurrection created a community. This resurrection of Jesus Christ did not simply validate the cross so that Jesus could save me individually from my sins. That's totally true. However, there's more to the story, and we're going to find it, amongst other places, we're going to find it today in Romans 8. So let's walk this, through this for a little bit, and then I have a couple of calls to action for everyone listening, and then we're going to be done. And then you're going to go eat something very yummy. Okay. 
This is the Apostle Paul writing. This is a, a, a long book where he is introducing his theology to a church in Rome that he's never met. He's just kind of saying, hey, here's how I teach the gospel. So it's very slow and careful and robust. Pick it up with me, if you would, at verse 10. He's in the middle of a thought. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about that. Talking to Christians. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, right? Genesis 3, the natural consequence of humanity rebelling against God. Your body's going to die. The Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. If you've got a more word-for-word translation, you're going to see a big word called justified. Legally justified. Your account has been made right between you and God. And he's talking to people because of their faith in Jesus Christ's cross to wash away their sins. Not their faith in their own good works. Not faith in some other deity or some other worldview. You've trusted Jesus and you're made right with God. That's why the Spirit gives you life. You're alive. Okay? Resurrection. Verse 11. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, there's Easter, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, just as, so same as, similarly, here we go, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. So he just talked about physical resurrection. Not only do you spiritually already have life, you've already been spiritually brought from death to life if you trust Jesus. He's even going to resurrect your physical body one day too. Wow. Okay, cool. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. He's saying it's normal Christian behavior to make war against sin. And if you're uh, not a Christian and you've seen a lot of the news that I've watched over the last you know, couple of decades, whatever, you, you, this may have given you an kind of feeling in your stomach. That's what I called it when I was a kid, stummy. Ugh, make war against sin because you see what makes the evening news and why I was so excited that we as a church made the news this morning what makes the news all too often is when religious types have made war against somebody else's sin I didn't get any amens there at all but it, it's tragic and those of us who love Jesus deeply and love people deeply we don't like it it's a, it's a ugh, kind of a feeling when somebody is out there with a sign railing against somebody else's wrongdoing, and they could be technically right, but there's nothing loving or humble about it in the least. Christian humility demands, what did Jesus say? Before you help your brother get the speck out of their eye, let's get the log out of your own. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't say your brother didn't have a speck? We live in a world today, 21st century Western humanity, we love to say essentially that there's nothing wrong. Everybody do your own thing. You know, my morality is my morality. Yours is yours. Jesus doesn't endorse that in the least. He didn't say the brother didn't have something in his eye. Yes, your brother is a sinner. However, you're not God. You're a sinner too. So how about you, what? How, how, does, it, how does somebody get the log out of their own eye to be helpful to other people? You repent deeply. You stand before God who is sinless, Jesus who is sinless, and you say, Jesus, would you wash me clean? Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, I have broken a thousand things with my thoughts, my words, my actions. Would you heal me? Would you forgive me of my sin? And from a re- forgiven place, man, 
Do you know, don't we all already know this intuitively, irrespective of what your religion is? Don't you know that somebody who really believes they've got their own junk and they have asked for forgiveness for things that they have done, they've tried to right wrongs, don't you know that person is so much more gracious when they have a conversation with you about something maybe hurtful that you've said? If the person confronting you thinks that they're always right and they're not broken in any way, they come across very judgmental. Jesus is disagreeing with both sides. He's saying to humanity, you cannot just be a judge because you're a sinner yourself. But he also says to the other parts of humanity, yeah, you're still broken too. This means neither of us are going to be the savior. Two human beings, one sins against the other. Neither of us are going to be savior. Jesus is going to be savior. That was for free. Anyway, what verse was I in? Uh, mortal body and Oh, yeah. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. We're in verse 13. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So what is indicative of a person who's actually been transformed by the gospel? They're constantly going to war with their own sin. Their own sin. If you're listening today, and you are not, day in and day out, week in and week out, fighting your own sin, you read the Bible so that God will change you, not so that you get information in your head about who God is. You read it so that it will mess with you. It's a scalpel and it's digging things out of your heart. If you read it that way, if you open yourself up in authentic community with other Christians and relationships and give people permission, please, would you speak into my life? Would you tell me if I'm loving my wife well? Would you t tell me if you see something in my parenting that's not honoring to God? You open yourself up like that. You are fighting your own sin. And that is how Christians behave. Paul says so. If you're surrendering to the Holy Spirit's power in your life as a Christian, you are fighting your own sin. You're not making excuses. <laughs> you're not drinking in the Kool-Aid that our world has to offer of, oh, everybody's doing it. You fight, and you fight, and you fight. Because in Ephesians, we see there's the armor of God. There's a sword and a helmet and a breastplate and sandals. There's not the couch of God. There's not the remote of God. There's not the popcorn of God. There's the armor of God. Fight. Your friends who do not know Jesus, if you're a Christian today, your friends who don't know Jesus, what they need to see from you, what they need to see from me, is that we fight our sin. We don't mess around with it anymore. In the second Chronicles of Narnia book, it's also depicted in the movie. There's a place where the oldest brother, Peter, has entered into a conversation with the white witch, who's a, pretty much a direct corollary, a symbol of Satan, God's enemy, Aslan's enemy. And... This white witch is making him an offer, and he's thinking about it. He has his sword pointed at her like he sees a villain, but then she starts talking to him. You've seen this if you've read Genesis chapter 3. You point a sword at Satan or you don't point. He's going to start talking to you. He's going to start getting inside your head, get inside your thinking. Did God really say that to you? Matthew 4, if you are the son of God. He's going to start talking. And he points a sword at the white witch, and she starts talking, starts making him a deal. 
And her, she was supposedly killed in the last movie, but her spirit is living in this giant structure of ice where he sees her. And then as he's thinking, and he's thinking, and you don't know which decision he's going to make, all of a sudden, the ice cracks and shatters, and it reveals his younger brother, Edward, standing behind with a sword that actually went into the ice. And he just looks at his older brother. And what you need to know is this younger brother, he made a deal with the devil in the first movie. He was in cahoots with the White Witch, and he learned the hard way of, of what that relationship looks like. And he just looks at his older brother, feeling like he should have known. Like, didn't you see how I betrayed you? Don't you see how I betrayed Aslan? Didn't you see all that? Were you not there? Didn't you get a front row seat to me diving headlong into sin? Didn't you see that? And he looks at his brother's face and he says, let me guess, you had it figured. Like, you were going to think your way through this. It's you and Satan in a cage match, and you're going to think your way through this. And the younger brother who has sinned, and he has sinned big time, and he has betrayed everyone he loves most in order to take what the white witch offers. He doesn't mess with sin anymore. This is why it is so critical, brothers and sisters. If you call yourself a Christian, if you cannot see your own sin, if you cannot testify as to the sins of your past, of how you've gotten into bed with Satan... And the price that you paid, the price that your family paid, the price that your friends paid, the price that God's glory paid. If you can't emotionally go there and testify as to what you've done, you'll try to enter into conversations and think your way through it. Instead of grabbing a sword. Fourteen. He says, this is why he says what he says in 12 13. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That should scare you. That should scare you. You want to know if you're a child of God? You're led by the Spirit of God. Those go together. You can't separate them. 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Important grammatical question. Is the word slaves singular or plural? You guys are good. So what it means is the you throughout this entire book, actually. When he says you, this is a plural you. You all. You guys. use guys. You. He's talking to Christians in Rome. Have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted. Are you ready? You. As his own children. And that right there is the verse that messes up a lot of American Christianity. We keep it in our heads as a theoretical idea that Jesus Christ went to the cross for everybody who would believe and that he was resurrected in power to defeat death for everyone who believes. But then somebody comes along and tells me about Jesus and tells me to pray this personal prayer to invite Jesus into my heart a weird concept that's not even in the Bible, by the way, for him to be my personal Lord and Savior. That part is in the Bible. Is he Lord over me? Is he the Savior of me? And I just got introduced not only to my Savior, but accidentally I got introduced into individualized Christianity. I do need to personally repent before Jesus. I personally need to embrace his cross to wash away my sins. But then I need to be told, Hey, Greg, you were just adopted into a family. 
Someone's got to tell me this. This isn't a part of salvation. It's, it's not like I'm not a Christian if somebody didn't tell me the second part. What, what matters is, is the first part. I rebelled against God and Jesus willingly went to a cross to wash away the consequences of my rebellion and reconcile me to the Father. Awesome. Now that I'm saved, would somebody please tell me that when this father adopts you, he has already adopted billions of other children and you have siblings now. And so much of the New Testament is constantly teaching those siblings how to treat each other and how to relate to their father and how to love and serve people who are not yet a part of the family. So much of the New Testament is devoted to that, which is why we're going to spend six more weeks working on sibling relationships. All of this is communal you, communal you, communal you. You do not have a spirit of slaves. You're not slaves anymore, right? Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Amen. Now we call him Abba, Father, or Daddy, a term of endearment. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. There's an inheritance from God. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering, which is a sermon for another day. What's coming after this is just beautiful and amazing because it's Romans. And he's going to tell you really, really clearly that the decision to become a Christian should not be considered lightly. Especially, I mean, if you become a part of this family and they tell you right there in their scriptures that you get armor as a part of being the family, and what are you doing war against? Well, sin inside your own life. And the scriptures are also very clear there are certain Christian behaviors that are doing war against Satan himself. Satan wants the world to be deceived away from the love of God, to not know there's a God who went to a cross for them. Um, if you're here today listening, I'm, I'm telling you. And yet there are still kinds of, all kinds of blocks and excuses and thoughts that can go through somebody's head and somebody's heart of, that's silly. They believe in Satan. They're one of those, man, Pastor Greg is two guys back on the evolutionary chart, grunting and scratching himself. He believes in Satan. But I want to keep pressing in to you. Uh, if, if you're of a more secular worldview, a more atheistic, agnostic worldview, uh, I do believe that it is quite natural to believe in the angelic that are both good and evil if you're trying to explain what's going on in our world. Um, and if you're really even just trying to explain ethics, if you want to say that good is good and bad is bad, um, I believe that the uh, atheistic worldview has a lot more questions to answer than I do. Um, it, it actually makes a lot of sense if you believe in absolute truth, with which Christians do. So that's a little side note. Um, Let's get to a couple of practical application points. And again, really, where we're really diving in is the next six weeks. But let's get to a couple practical application points. If you're uh, tuning in for the first time, you may not know my kids, Cabrina and Gabriel, 10 and 19 months. This is, well, I'm not going to say where this is, because then you're going to uh, judge me that they had McNuggets and McSodas with their McStraws and McNapkins. But, uh, so I won't tell you where we were. But let's just say they had a Mick playground, and it was awesome on a rainy day. Here's the deal. 
Cabrina and Gabriel did not get to choose that they were both going to be Kaisers. Not really. Cabrina did get to choose in the sense that she wanted to be a Kaiser on the front end, but she didn't choose that she was going to have a sibling. Like There was not a vote. When Gabriel arrived, we did not sit down and say, Cabrina, should Gabriel have the last name Kaiser or should he be a part of a different family? Cabrina didn't get to vote on that one. Okay, I Actually, I said it wrong. She did get to choose whether to be a Kaiser. Gabriel didn't. Um, but when Gabriel came into the family, Cabrina did not have a say as to whether he was going to be a sibling or, or he was going to be part of some different family. Gabriel did not have a say over whether he's going to have a sibling or she's going to be a part of a different They had no say in that. And if you call yourself a Christian, I need you to go here emotionally for a minute. I need you to think about this, wrap your head around it so that you can get down into the heart and go there emotionally. Christians have a nasty habit of leaving a church because that person's hard to work with, that person hurt my feelings, blah, blah, blah. And I want to submit to you that might be consumerism more than it is Christianity. If the Bible calls us a family, we're going to expect to have weird, you know, Uncle Earl who's going to rail about the same politics every Thanksgiving meal, and we're all going to just roll our eyes, and it's going to be what it's going to be. Families expect a certain amount of dysfunction because it's family. You're not going anywhere. Maybe you press in hard. Maybe you just passively deal with it. But there are certain expectations with family that, ex- that is uh, indicative of higher levels of commitment. If something goes sideways at a Wendy's when I'm ordering a little chocolate frosty, I have no relational tie to that Wendy's. If I have a bad experience, I just go to another one. Or I can throw off the whole institution and say, I'm done with Wendy's. I don't really believe in Wendy's anymore. You know, I think Dave Thomas never really existed historically. I think they made him up after the fact. Like, I can come up with reasons why I can throw out everything that I've experienced. Because that's a consumer relationship. Family is different. I want to submit to you, if you call yourself a Christian... You have siblings, and you've had those siblings from the moment Jesus changed your heart. And you don't get to choose whether they are your brother or sister. And I don't get to choose whether they are my brother or sister. So this is going to be hard, because this person's a sinner, and that person's a sinner, and that person's a sinner, and they are all my siblings, and I'm a sinner, and they have to deal with me. And in a culture that is so addicted to comfort. This isn't comfortable. Years ago, Emily and I agreed that marriage was the hardest thing we had ever done, but it was worth it. And it's hard because we're both sinners. And then parenting came along, and we go, ha! Right? Parenting is the new one. That is the hardest thing we have ever done, and yet it's worth it. Totally, completely worth it. Far more joy than there is pain. That's how family works. And what I am going to try to convince over the next seven weeks 
to ARCF and anybody else who's tuning in. We love you. We're glad you're here. I'm going to try to take a bunch of rugged individualists and convince you that the pain and the effort and the struggle to be siblings and to be gracious and loving toward each other, to serve each other, I'm going to try to convince you that it's worth it, even though it's hard. That's my aim. That's my objective, so you know exactly what I'm going to be working toward. Here we go. Lord Jesus, save us all. Here's your call to action if you call yourself a Christian. I need you to understand adoption comes at a high cost for all members of a family, but it's worth it. Okay? So if you're a Christian, you are the one who is adopted in. You have a father by the blood of Jesus, and you have siblings now. It's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for your siblings, but I promise you none of that pain was as difficult as Jesus dying on a cross to make you a family member in the first place. So when he gives his very life for you, it is a small request, even if it's difficult, it is a small thing for him to say, here's how you're going to love your brothers and sisters. When he gives those commands, you and I have no right to arrogantly just say, no, God, I'm smarter than you. No, God, I don't owe you anything. If you're exploring faith, um, here we go. Here's what I want you to know. Adoption comes at a high cost for all members of a family, but it's worth it. Exact same point. I need you to know, while you're still choosing, do I want to be adopted into the family of God? Do I, do I believe that Jesus' cross is something that actually offers forgiveness of sin to anybody who wants it? As you consider that, I want you to see the brokenness of the church that is so popular to complain about. A lot of it's real. A lot of it's real because we're broken people. But it is worth it in order to have family. It is so totally worth it. And the scripture tells us one day we're going to be in heaven where we're not going to be sinners anymore and we're not going to sin against each other anymore. We're not going to hurt and offend each other anymore. But there's only going to be love and peace and joy. I'm going to pray for us. And then you guys are going to go have a wonderful Easter. I pray that you're able to, with every drop of your heart, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it applies to you today, now. Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for your resurrection. We cannot thank you enough that you are bigger than death. We're living in a world right now more afraid of death than ever, more afraid of disease and the brokenness of a Genesis 3 world than ever. And we thank you, God, that you have come into our world to roll back everything that is dark and everything that is broken. And we look forward, God, to your second coming where you do that finally. We thank you for your first coming where you wash away the power of sin. And we thank you for your second coming where every sad thing will be made untrue. Help us who call ourselves Christians. Make us, may we genuinely honor you in the way that we treat you, in the way we treat others. God, it's for the beauty of your name that we make these endeavors. And it's by the, the power of your blood that we're able to pray right now and be heard by the Father in Jesus' great name we pray, God's people said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.